Hello and welcome to Poetry Nonstop. I'm Patrick Widdis and today's guest is Des Manet, sharing poems from his first collection, Sodom and Tomorrow. Des will also be sharing ideas for writing poems based on family history, so make sure you have a pen and notebook to hand and have a go at writing something. Now, here's Des with a poem which I should warn you contains racist language in a cultural and historical context. So in terms of this poem, uh, coming from what some people would call a multicultural black background or a, or a BAME background, I just think of myself as a black British person, really. Where, where we're from a, a sort of mixed background, uh, you, you take your heroes where you can. And one of mine was uh, Muhammad Ali. Uh, so obviously on his death, uh, I wrote this poem and it, Part, sort of a, a tour of duty, really. It was looking back as though my life, really, in, in many ways. Uh, so I'll just read this one. It's called On the Death of Muhammad Ali. Uh, Goodbye, butterfly. You stung like a bee. You stung me. From you, I learned resistance to all the nigger, nigger, pull up, trigger, playground taunts. I could reply, come on, Bookner. The kids at school never listened to Blue Mink. They didn't know that what we needed was a great big melting pot. My parents did. They had me. The Ugandan Asian crisis hit. And I became called a Paki overnight because Enoch was right and I should go back to where I come from, even though I was there already. And to some Asian kids, I was just another Gauri. And the white girls didn't stay too long because they didn't want to be called dog meat by their peers shove thy neighbor so tell me what the hell is the color of love and the rasters wore whales football tops well they were red gold and green to them i was a threat also babylon i could not go back to africa a place i'd never been and my heroes all spoke perfect english sydney poitier clr james the old old ladies in cardiff's docks told me about Africans when they came and how tall they were, how smart they were in top hats, spats and canes. And my granddad was a crewman. And then he joined a crew, sailed the seven seas and settled in the Bay of Tigers, raised a family. And my father was a half caste. That's what they said back then. And he would sing Calypso. Why don't you give me baddie shilly midi lion on it, lion on it, lion on it, as he did the washing up, but said Jamaicans, you Johnny come ladies. As I got, got older, boundaries blurred, bigotry rescinded like the tide, I became exotic, Amerindian, Latin American, because of long straight black hair and melanin darkened skin, myth making identity yet again. And I don't know where I come from, but you don't know where I'm going. But I do worry the tide is coming in again. And sometimes I really do feel like throwing my hands up in the air. So goodbye, butterfly. You spread your wings and I have been stung by the world. That was a great poem and uh, very well performed. Um, so when did you first become aware of these race issues? In terms of that, it was uh, really strange. Uh, 
when you're a child, you don't think of yourself as a color or anything like that. It's you're just a child. It's a conversation I've had with my dad quite often about things like that. But the, when I become aware of race was uh, my dad was a steel worker and he was built like a brick outhouse basically. And we had this sort of daily routine that we would uh, watch the news before having our tea. And one, one night it, this news pro broadcast came on and it was the blacks are rioting in, uh, it was somewhere in London. And I just looked at my dad, and dad, who are the blacks? And he just looked at me sort of side-eyed and he just went, we are son. And it was just like a, a lightning bolt mo moment. It was just like, ah, that's why people keep calling me funny names at school. That was, that was the moment that I realized that I was from a thick <laughs> minority. Yeah, um, and uh, you mentioned you wrote uh, this poem uh, when uh, Muhammad Ali died. Um, was that the first time you'd written about this kind of stuff? No, I think it, it's cropped in sort of throughout my, my writing. I think uh, there were a number of other poems. Uh, there's a few that have made it through to the collection. It was just, just trying to think of some of the other ones. Uh, there was one that... Uh, called They Call Me, which is mentions the way that people get referred to as Johnny Foreigner. There was a few just about trying to relate to other people. Sometimes in direct prejudices that you that you, you come across. There's there's a few just about the way that interrelationships work, you know, like within relate when you're trying when you're a teenager trying to sort of find yeah. your way as it is. But yeah, there's there's quite a few that touch on it. Yeah, and uh, how prominent was Muhammad Ali uh, as you were growing up? He was just one of those iconic figures in terms of the the whole history of the the late sixties and the rise of sort of the, the civil rights movement and the black consciousness movement in the sixties and how that shaped Ali. I mean. But the things that I can remember as a, as a kid was the sort of footage of him refusing to go to Vietnam and getting stripped of his boxing titles. When he was asked why why he didn't want to go and fight in Vietnam, he just went, no Vietnamese has ever called me nigger. That was, that was good enough for him. It's yeah. Seeing somebody with that much sort of self-confidence and uh, attitude is a great thing. When you're when you're living in Britain uh, in, 19, in the 1970s, and uh, all the TV programs are really horrible things like uh, Love Nine Thy Neighbor and the Black and White Minstrel Show is Saturday Night Entertainment. <laughs> so it's quite a complex poem. You've got uh, lots going on in there. Did it take a long time to write? It took about possibly a day or so to write it and what I do when I whenever I write something I just leave it uh, I usually handwrite and then just leave it for at least 48 hours and then come back and look at it and then because it was just like a, a lot of poems are just like a stream of consciousness thing so you know there's going to be all sorts of elongated irrelevant stuff which are not going to sit well in the poem once it went once you've looked at it. So I, after 48 hours, I come along with a pen and cut out anything that shouldn't be, and then I type it up. I think there's a difference in writing something in ink and just typing something onto a page, I think. It gives you more time to reflect. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's, uh, it's a bit like uh, baking, really, writing. You need to give the dough a bit of time to rise. Absolutely, yeah. And, uh, also in the poem, there were one or two uh, references that might not be familiar to everyone. You mentioned Bugner and Blue Mink, and there's a bit of wordplay on crew and crewmen. Yeah, sure. Uh, Joe Bugner was uh, Britain's great white hope. Uh, Ali came over to to do a, a world championship title fight, and he just destroyed Bugner in in record time. There was just no way this guy should have been in the same ring as him. Blue Mink were a band in the late '60s who were made up of both black and white uh, performers, and they put out a song called uh, Melting Pot. And the 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 song in the '60s was quite a seen as quite a good liberal anti-racist song at the time but it did contain the language at the time so it's looked down on now it makes some of some of the ways of describing people uh, would be looked at as derogatory now but back then it was a path-breaking thing because you had this black and white group on on top of the pops saying that we need to forget about racism and that what we need is to just all get together and end up all the same color which is a bit of a naive idea but uh, considering the time it was written in. There were loads of sort of naive, naive ideas floating around then. Yeah, and then there's, uh, there's a bit of wordplay on crew and crewman. Yeah, because uh, the, where my grandfather sort of originated from was West Africa. And basically, the, he settled in in the docks area of Cardiff in the early 19th, well, late 19th, early 20th century. The, the crew was the, uh, you know, which spelled either C-R-U or K-R-U, depending on where you are in Africa, uh, was, was a, a West African tribe who were well known for, for being merchant seamen. So they were, the, the path to Britain was to, to go via Sierra Leone and settle in Dockland towns in, in Cardiff, the black population were mainly merchant seamen. It wasn't a slave town like Bristol or anything. So these people were sort of of independent means and would buy and let out property and have sort of set up seamen's missions in, in the docks area. So my grandfather sort of survived the, the race riots in 1919, where he had uh, a white, there were loads of uh, black sailors who also had white wives. So it was quite a mixed area. But in terms of that, that sort of, journey he survived the race riots a lot of, there were loads of uh, demon black soldiers in, in in the tiger bay area of cardiff um, if you look at what the area was like it was like a, you had to cross a bridge to get into there so when white people tried to lynch blacks and sort of invade the area it was fairly simple to defend but also lots of demob black soldiers came back with their own arms. So, you know, people, white rioters would be, who were trying to burn down Siemens missions would be met with a volley of gunfire, <laughs> basically. Uh, this was happening when? Uh, 1919, it, the, the riots raged on for several months. Uh, and also the local Chinese population moved into the docks because they'd suffered race riots in 1911. So they came to the docks area for their own safety. Uh, Basically, the, the the police were driven out, sentries were put on the bridges, and it, 
eventually obviously the police regained control and people were deported but yeah it was one of those rare moments where there was a, a race riot where the black population actually won it's uh, amazing family background you have have you done much research into your family history one of my cousins has uh, it's a really strange thing with, with black families in south wales sometimes you don't know people that you're related to. It was a guy that I was at college with and we used to have a pint in a bar every so often and got on really well. And my uncle died and he turned up at, at my uncle's funeral. And I just went, hello, Paul, what are you doing at my uncle's funeral? And he went, well, he's my uncle as well. <laughs> but his, his branch of the family, he's, uh, he was studying history and his partner was as well. So they're doing a, a huge sort of family history project, not just of our own family, but uh, other families within Newport and Cardiff and Barry, which was where all the, all the sort of black populations were in Southeast Wales. Yeah, well, that uh, must be a, a fascinating thing to tap into. And uh, I think uh, for your writing prompt, um, uh, you're going to suggest that uh, we look at our own family histories. Yeah, that's correct. But uh, in terms of uh, the way I explained the, the Muhammad Ali poem, and also that, that sort of potted family history, try and choose it may be a sort of semi-mythological thing for all we know, but some sort of part of your own family's potted history and try and put yourself in where you fit in as part of that, that sort of family myth or legend and what it means to you now. Yes, yes. Um, and uh, it's a great opportunity to maybe find out a bit uh, more about your family history if you don't uh, know much. Absolutely. So um, I had to go at this uh, myself and I ended up writing about uh, something that uh, happened in my family long before I was born, it happened to uh, people that uh, I didn't uh, know. Um, but at the same time, it's uh, very much uh, uh, connected to me as you're here. So um, this is called My Great Grandfather Was Hit By A Train. My great grandfather was hit by a train long before he was anyone's grandfather just a baby in a sleepy Tasmanian town. Not much more than a high street intersected by a railway on which, once a week, a freight train rattled by. What tragic odds combined the day his sister left his pram parked outside the store at the top of the hill when the brake failed and no one saw or stopped him as he rolled down the street and onto the track just as the locomotive came by, dead on time and smashed the pram to smithereens. And what odds were overcome on the kitchen table where the doctor operated for 12 hours until the lad pulled through. My life too was saved that day, 70 years or more before it started. How many gaps are left by those who didn't make it? Who did we not go to school with? Who isn't walking past the window? Who won't sit beside you on a park bench 
when the spring weather turns warm as you look up from the pages of the novel you both adore. Yeah, so that's what I came up with and um, I hope you'll uh, try it too. Um, do you have any other words of advice for approaching that prompt? No, just just in terms of listening to the family stories, because there's always sort of stories about, oh, great uncle so-and-so did this or that, and just question your relatives a bit about it Well, when, when those stories turn up. Yes, yes. And well, we've learned a bit about your uh, past and family background, but uh, when did you first discover poetry? There were uh, a number of, sort of childhood influences that, that first got me addicted to wordplay. I mean, my parents were always interested in trying to get their kids to do better um, than they'd achieved. So they got me hooked on things like Dr. Seuss when, when I was a child. And I couldn't read, but I could recite whole stories. And another influence, which is, sounds really bizarre, was a, a Sunday school. I grew up on a really rough working class area of Cardiff in, in Adamstown. But there were these sort of earnesty sort of Christian types that had set up some sort of evangelical Sunday school, which would used to be every lunchtime. So it was sudden, suddenly about every family in, in the streets around where I grew up had an instant babysitter on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, so you'd get these, they would eagerly load up their minibus with a motley crew, crew of uh, Protestants, Catholics, Sikhs, Hindus and Muslims, and off we'd go to this Sunday school. Uh, when I was there, some other kid was reading out a bit of Ecclesiastes and asked if I liked it. And I said, yes, and he went, it's called poetry. Um, so the, from there, the sort of word stuck. I think when I was at school, the first thing that I wrote that could possibly be a poem was we were doing, you know, it's like one of those things that you do at school where they get you to make cards and stuff. And we were doing one for, it was Mother's Day coming up. And it was just like, do something for your Mother's Day thing. And rather than just saying, I writing something like, I love you, mum, or something like that in there, I, where I was in, addicted to Dr. C.S.C. type writing, I just wrote something like, this is only for my mother, not my sister or my brother. And I think that was the first time I'd ever tried, I, I ever wrote a, a stanza was probably about seven years old in infant school. Yeah, very good. So growing older, did you continue writing poetry? Not for a long time. I think the, the first sort of poets I can remember was, well, there was two ways I, I, disco I discovered poetry. It was partially um, the stuff that was brewing in the late 70s, where you had people like uh, John Cooper Clark and Linton Kwesi Johnson sort of making their mark. Uh, and also the, the, the later ranting poets. But I was also an absolute fan of 60s Motown. Uh, it was just something that I picked up from my cousins and stuff. And I was a complete fan of the 60s, but once you start digging into the 60s, you discover all the other stuff as well, you know, like all the other social stuff that was happening at the time. So you discover the Liverpool poets and people like, uh, the one that really blew my mind was um, out of the 60s poets was Adrian Mitchell, that To Whom It Must Concern, I think was the title. To Whom It May Concern, sorry. Seeing footage of that at the big poetry festival where all the, you know, people like, Ginsberg had come over just that was just amazing and so going on from there in terms of writing poetry I think I started writing poetry when I was in my 20s and tried to go to the first poetry group I'd ever seen which was 
in a, in a pub near, near the castle in Cardiff. Um, but it was very white, very middle class and full of poetry professors and all this sort of stuff who were more interested in arguing with each other than anything else. So I went there for a couple of weeks and thought, well, sort this, uh, I give up and just stopped writing. I, I, I mean, I still wrote occasionally, occasionally, but didn't bother performing or anything. Um, the first time I actually did a proper poetry performance was uh, back in 2014. I think we did the same gig together. It was a, a No Glory in War thing. That was completely different. It was just people who were, you know, poetry was a part of their lives and they, it was the way that they could reflect and refract things and make sense of the world and try and engage with the public as well, which that was probably a baptism of fire, wasn't it, Patrick? It, was, it wasn't like some sort yeah. of poetry event in, in a nice pub or a club or anything. It was on the streets uh, on the, the anniversary of the outbreak of World War One, and we were doing anti-war poems and the army were down down the road from us selling poppies. <laughs> yeah, and um, that uh, brings us almost up to the present day, but it's been a very busy and successful few years for you since then um, with uh, various um, awards and uh, gigs and uh, recently your uh, debut collection has come out. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. I mean, what I did was when I first started from that sort of thing in 2014, I really started thinking, right, let's go for it. Let's start pushing the poems out. And I entered lots, there's loads and loads of different free competitions. And being somebody who's not flush with money, I entered loads of those. And one of the ones I won was um, the Creative Futures Literary Awards. I think they're still going. It's still a free competition, and it's now just called the Creative Futures Writing Awards. And I got placed in that, which I was over the moon about. Uh, and it meant I had to go into go to London to perform. But as part of the part of the prize, I was given a mentor for the year, a guy called Simon Jenner, who is also the director of two publishing houses. We worked together quite a lot. You know, he was loads of sort of online conversations and things. It was really beneficial. But the other thing was Simon would tell me if there was anything sort of coming up that I might need to enter. And his publishing house were, were trying to find sort of a way of making it more multicultural. So they set up something called the Litter Project. He said, oh, submit some stuff to there. There'll be independent judges. You know, you're not guaranteed to get in. So I sort of entered that. And I was one of the people selected to produce a collection from, from that. It was uh, quite a nice little catchment of us. Um, we all met up a few times before our books came out. So it was just by, unless you enter things, unless you sort of send your poems off to, to get published, enter competitions, it's by doing that that you make links and you never know where those what those links lead to. Just so happened one of the competitions I won that year led to the relationship that led to the book coming out. Yeah, yeah. So uh, tell us about the book. The book is called Sodom and Tomorrow. It's been published by Waterloo Press. It has all sorts of lovely people writing recommendations on the back, ranging, ranging from Attila the Stockbroker 
to the costural, the, well, it's now the editor of Poetry Wales, Jonathan Edwards is recommending it. Uh, but it was, it was really good fun putting this together. But one of the strangest stories from that was where Simon became my editor for, the, for, the, for this collection as well. From as There was a group of editors and he decided he was going to work on, on my book and a couple of other people's. We were discussing, discussing the, the, the the content, um, we were having this conversation one day about one of the, the poems in there, and it's called Just Walk In, and he went, I'm sure I've seen this set out in a different way before. I was thinking, no, no, I've never sent it to you in any, any other sort of form, it's just a straight line poem. You just went, well, I'm sure I've seen it sort of spread along the page where the, the stanzas go from one side to the other. I was just going, no, I've never sent it like that. And he just went, oh. Are you sure? He went, well, I think I must have dreamt about it then. And I just thought, this, this, is, this, this is interesting. I just went, describe how it looked on the page when you were dreaming. So he did. And I set the poem out the way it appeared in his dream. And that's how it appears in the book. It's just uh, incredible, uh, you know, just a poem. Cause you don't think about this. Do you think about people, novelists or filmmakers and, and songwriters, that their, dream, their songs crop up in your dreams, but a bit of paper with some writing on <laughs> just sort of cropped up in this guy's dream. Um, we took it from there. To be honest, it's a much better poem after he dreamt about it than it was before he dreamt about it. Yes, um, brilliant. Um, yeah, is, uh, we maybe hear that poem? Sure. Uh, so this one's just walking. Taking in the night air, waiting for the nightmare, or will it be a dream? Walking past the old factory which spews out its pollution, along the river bank where dossers and tramps sleep. But there's no natural route from the brewery to the drunk, and their own ruined lives, embers of a dying flame which once lit their bodies with life. And the river carries the past to the, to the present and the city holds a million untold stories locked behind closed doors which sometimes break out into the streets liberated for all to see journalists rewrite them tabloid diamond sleezes into victims or animals which deserve no pity the type behind the typeface forgotten their lives carry on just like the river to the sea negotiating through the taps, rocks and whirlpools, cars drive through nighttime's ghost roads. Hours ago, the town would breathe out people. Now darkness draws its breath and tucks them in. A time to walk and clear the mind of countless thoughts that gathered through the day. We live inside this prison. These invisible bars prevent us breaking free. Only night, late night thoughts pass easily between them. Tear down and tear away. The chains which bind my tongue and wrap the blindfold let me walk the pavements of truth. The distraught are not the vanquished or masters of their destiny. We cannot clean the streets by scraping them until they shine with our skin. The selfish cut to the bone for the banquet of the unknown glitter. Surely there is a better way of living. I know this is true. The river told me so. It carried the past to the present like the river to the sea, and I waited for the nightmare. This time it'll be a dream. Wonderful. 
and the book came out uh, about a year ago, which was uh, rather uh, bad timing um, with lockdown uh, kicking off. But uh, I believe that um, brought with it uh, some challenges and uh, opportunities. Yeah, it was um, in terms of the book itself, it was brilliant doing the book launch. Uh, the, the book came out in March, just before the big, the first big lockdown. So we we launched it in uh, the Bernie Grant sort of art centre in Tottenham, which was an incredible sort of experience. That went really well. I really loved that. There was me and another one of the the litter project poets both launching our publications at the same time. Then, whilst I was waiting for the book to come out, I was I'd set up virtually a twenty date book launch tour going around various different poetry clubs and festivals and what have you and the first one was run by Seren Books uh, uh, with Amy Wack the editor of Seren Books uh, runs first Thursday in Cardiff and she liked the book and uh, you know done a comment for the back of the book as well so we did that one which again was was great fun to do and then lockdown happened and you just have to watch all these cancellations happening as you go along and you know everything got cancelled but from there um, I'm not the best person for, for going online I was very reluctant to do zoom things like that I'd read all the sort of scare stories about it that had been in the press about you know people popping up and stealing your details and all that sort of stuff but eventually I got talked into it by somebody else who was completely internet phobic a guy called Tim Evans who's based in Swansea and eventually I sort of dipped my toe in for it was a, a live poet society gig um, but it was being hosted by Bookmarks Bookshop in London as well. So the first Zoom I did, because of the, the combined sort of audience, you know, a, a fairly reputable radical bookshop and another really good radical uh, poetry night, it had a thousand views. So, <laughs> so my first ever online performance uh, had an audience of about a thousand over, over the over a time there. But from there, I started. There's a there's a bunch of British poets that have been, because of the Zoomosphere, you can sort of go abroad without having to buy an airplane ticket anymore. And so there's a, a really good Nashville poetry night that I've done loads of times, and I've done a featured spot there. There's a poetry night in Scotland called Block from the Blue, which is really good. I've done a featured poet slot there. And there's another one uh, in the north of England run, run by an American guy called Randy, who's sort of an expat and lives over here now, called Write and Release. So I've done feature poet slots there. It's not, it's not going to be the same as going out to a, a book launch proper in the flesh. But it does mean you're, you're able to get out there. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, if you have any uh, recommendations for events like that, uh, um do of course uh, share them you uh, uh, so still seem to be up to a lot um, you were telling me uh, before we started recording and I'm uh, still not entirely sure if you're not uh, pulling my leg but apparently you're, you're going to have a couple of poems on the moon yes this is quite a strange story let me see this I discovered accidentally back in 
I think it was 2017 or 2018, there was an Iranian national who lives in America and she does bilingual poetry anthologies to send to the, the Farsi-speaking countries. And basically any, any money that she makes from selling the books funds sending these to private libraries in places like Iran because they haven't had English language poetry in that country since the 1980s. You know, that was the last time there were any sort of bilinguals or for translations done. And she's done a three-volume anthology called Persian Sugar in English Tea. It popped up on, I just got sort of tagged in a Facebook post about the volume one, which I've got a couple of poems in. Basically, there's a something called Writers on the Moon, which is, they're like little pods, uh, you know, like where you do a time capsule, you bury it in a garden or something like that. Mm. They're doing this, but putting them on the moon. And it's an organization called Astrobotic that does these pods, but they, they're attached to NASA. So this anthology that's got a couple of my poems is going to be stored on the moon forever, basically, along with a load of other novels and poems and poem, poetry collections. But so I'm going to be stuck on the moon forever. That's amazing. Don't know whether anyone will uh, ever read them, um, maybe in a million years or so. But uh, so obviously there's uh, lots of places we can uh, read and uh, hear you uh, here on Earth as well. <laughs> you know, these things are just are totally unexpected. Again, it is another reason why if you... You should, even if you're just an unconfident person who's just started writing poems, you need to push them out there because you never know what it'll lead to. Yeah, um, great advice. And uh, yeah, thanks for uh, joining us. Would you like to uh, finish with a poem? Let me choose one of the moon poems, I suppose. This one is called Stoned. I'm like a pebble on a beach with shingle running over me scraping of ecstasy with the passing of the ties which are soon over and I'm left alone again with the sun beating down on me bleaching me white and baking the residue of salt until I crack at least inside I feel I do but this is never really true appetites wetted by the sea and you in reality you were a piece of shingle which was soon passed and only myself the sun and sand are still here the skimming stone of life goes on. That was Des Manet on Poetry Non-Stop. Check out his collection, Sodom and Tomorrow, published by Waterloo Press. I'll post a link to that on poetrynonstop.com, along with other information from the show, Des's recommended Zoom events, and his writing prompts. Have fun exploring your family history and, as always, send your poems to poetrynonstop at gmail.com or submit via the website to be featured on the blog or podcast. I'll be back with more podcasts soon. Until then, stay safe, thank you for listening and keep writing. <laughs>